Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. This is Londonist Out Loud. How we interpret a thing is almost always influenced by context. Sometimes events here in London can change the context in which we come to you. We were planning to do a show about the army long before the atrocity that was carried out against a British soldier in the city this week. Some of the fallout has been to question whether the media has aided the alleged terrorists by giving them a platform, whether we've been a part of stoking up anger, particularly on the far right. I've thought a lot about whether it's okay to do this show, uh, whether it could seem opportunistic or flippant. Uh, Worse, does it become some sort of statement in this new context? I believe that the chief way to respond to people who want chaos is with unswerving normality, which is not to say we don't feel, of course we do, and yet we don't let the provocations change what we're about. So this is the show as it was intended to go out, with nothing changed except this introduction. If it seems a little light of heart at times, or if I seem not to pick up on certain cues, you'll know why. I hope that the episode will contribute maybe just a little to the historical context of being a soldier in the British Army. Today's show is dedicated to drummer Lee Rigby and to those he leaves behind. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. Radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a a place called the Kittlehoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. What the hell is that? <laughs> the man is tired of London. He's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's a very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, what, immersing yourself in the sight, sound, And for song, the Jewish stories, community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland... We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced it is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. Uh, people frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. No, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? 
Well, hello, hello. I am here in Chelsea, out of the window. Through the drizzle, I can see the Chelsea Hospital there, which obviously has very strong military connections. I'm in a building which arguably has even stronger military connections. I'm at the National Army Museum. Here with me is David Bounds, and he's the Assistant Director of Collections. Hi, David. Hello. This is just such an amazing military environment. We've got the Royal Hospital next door, home of the famous Chelsea pensioners, and then just up the road on the King's Road, you've got the Duke of York's uh, barracks, which is now the Saatchi Gallery. But really, this is military Chelsea. I mean, this this has claims to be a World Heritage Site. This is uh, an ancient seat of the British Army. What's the purview of the museum? Clearly there's a suggestion in the title, but what are the nuances of what the collection's all about? The National Army Museum is the Museum of the British Soldier. It's the Museum of the Soldier from... Well, really from the 1660s to the present day, there are items in the collection that are earlier than that, that go back to the medieval times, when armies were raised for specific campaigns. But basically, we go back to the time of the New Model Army, time of the English Civil War, when a professional standing army was raised. And we tell that story in our galleries in a chronological way uh, from then, right up to the present day and the experience of the British Army in Afghanistan. We were having a bit of a debate off-air as to uh, whether... Well, I was contending, controversially perhaps, that the New Model Army was not called the New Model Army when it uh, first appeared. And uh, I'm going to get myself in trouble picking uh, fights about army stuff with, with people who know everything about the army. But uh, perhaps uh, listeners may wish to contribute something on, on that one via the usual methods. You can drop us a tweet or an email if you've got a view on that. One view that might be prevalent, and I'm, I'm not sure whether it's valid or not, is that uh, a lot of stuff around war and battles in the army particularly exhibits thereof you know guns and and weaponry and so forth amounts to boys toys and really there's nothing in it for the female visitor unless perhaps she happens to be unusually a soldier or something like that can we dispel that uh, misconception yeah absolutely i mean this is a this is a museum about britain's history about all aspects of britain's history the army has shaped what, what, what modern britain is about and we tell the story about uh, army wives, families, how the army is impacted on society, but also how the army is impacted on globally, because the British army was a global army, an army that recruited from all corners of the world. And we have outstanding collections relating to the Indian army, for example, which the museum was largely founded on that collection in, uh, in 1947. So there's there's an awful lot to discover here that you might not necessarily associate with the history of the army. We've also got a fantastic diversity of collections, a great art collection, for example, fantastic costume collections. So there are different ways into the history of the army than just guns and tanks. Yes, there's a fantastic exhibition uh, amongst those uh, existing or coming up about rehabilitative art I know as well. Maybe we should say something before we head off about the temporary exhibition at the moment to do with with 20 battles. I've got an exhibition at the moment which um, set out to decide what is Britain's most significant battle? What is it, if you like, greatest battle, although greatest is quite a problematic word. And in consultation, we selected 20 battles which we believe have played an important part in defining Britishness and Britain's place in the world. Some of those battles uh, are, are moments that change history, others are defeats, some are localised uh, importance, but all of which... Um, 
you know, have a place in the debate about what makes a battle significant and what makes its sort of cultural legacy significant. Now, the voting on that has now finished. There was two types of voting, um, both online and in the gallery. But that's led to uh, um, a debate about Britain's most significant battles. And you can see that exhibition on at the moment. Finally, before we head down to the galleries i think it might be interesting to separate the imperial war museum from the national army museum we're two very uh, very different uh, organizations although there are similarities the the imperial war museum deals with the period 1914 the beginning of the first world war to the present day and has quite a global remit really in looking at all aspects of conflict history in that period National Army Museum is a much longer uh, and broader remit altogether, going, like I said, right back to the English Civil War, 400 years plus of history of soldiering, the experience of being the British soldier, not a museum about the Air Force or the Navy. And it's also about the soldier's life and the impact of soldiering on British and world society. Where are we headed first? Well, I'm going to take you to look at some of the highlights from the collection, and I think it might be worth starting with the Napoleonic Wars and some real gems from the Battle of Waterloo. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud. Tweet at Londonist Sound and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. We are heading down now into the bowels of the museum. We've just gone past the transporter room. And well, I tell you what's noticeable about the museum in the public areas as well as the private is its newness. Yeah, the museum itself opened in the early 70s. And it's quite a sort of a brutalist modern, modern building. Um, and it's been refurbished in stages since then, with the most recent in the 2000s. You notice there's a, a lot of soldiers serving soldiers on visits to the museum so a lot of these chaps who are wearing suits going around on, on their army cadets or or you know serving soldiers here to learn a bit about military history well this is one of the main galleries called changing the world and this starts with the wars with revolutionary france in the 1780s and comes up to the uh, boer war at the turn of the 20th century and when this gallery was put together about 20 years ago at the time, it was a, a sort of a state-of-the-art uh, museum gallery. And even now, you can see the sort of quality of uh, the very lifelike display figures that we have here and also the methods of interpretation. There's lots of films like the ones you can hear in the background putting the sort of wars and these campaigns into context. What, what is the... If it has a, a central function, and of course it's to, to, to look at the history of the, uh, of the army... Uh, but is there a particular message that you're trying to get across about the army? About armies, I should say. Well, what we say is that you can't really understand British history without understanding the history of the army. History of the army has sort of shaped all aspects of Britain's relationships with both with itself but also with other countries. And we are the museum about the soldier and about the experience of the British soldier and how that's changed over time. Well, we're, ne- we're next, as you say, to a, uh, an imposing-looking fellow, a Swiss man, 
practicing a military drill. I should mention he's a model rather than somebody who's employed to stand in this pose. That's very true. I, I think this chap was, was selected because the, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, that period of warfare in the early 19th century, was, was global in its nature. I mean, we refer to it here as being the First World War because it's, uh, it was spread across the world, not just in Europe, uh, both Western and Eastern Europe, but also in the West Indies and elsewhere. And it also gives us an opportunity to show off uh, some of our costume collection, and you can see lots of examples on, on display here of uh, absolutely spectacular sort of tunics and headdress from the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the uh, 19th century. And the National Army Museum has got uh, one of the world's biggest collections of, of, of male occupational dress, which is a bit of a mouthful of just of really just saying that we've got one of the biggest costume collections of any museum. And it is, it is an incredible strength. And a strength, I think, that's, that's not always appreciated because the, the story about British military uniforms is the story of British textiles and is a story of, of fashion. So we work a lot with um, fashion students and sometimes with fashion houses as well because the style of military tailoring, quality of the cloth and, and the history behind how these were made, the sort of the industry that grew up around supplying the British Army is what enabled us to have the sort of clothing industry that we have. Right, and this was a time, of course, when it was a big deal to have brightly coloured fabrics. They were much more expensive to produce. There's lovely golden buttons on some of the uniforms we can see here. I know that uh, is it various regiments or have different button patterns and so forth. But the, the key thing, of course, is that all the uniforms in the display cabinets around us right now feature red, if not as the vastly dominant colour. Certainly, it's very present lots of embellishments, lots of flourishes, lots of other bright colours. At what point did the British Army decide that it would be better to blend in? To start off with, I mean, the Army, we were using red coats from that sort of new model army time, you know, the Civil War period, and that became, the, uh, became what the British Army was famous for, became a, a, a way of identifying the Army. But there's a lot of, sort of myths about the red coats. It's often said, for example, that it was selected because you wouldn't see the, the blood on the battlefield or the blood of a wound, or even that it enabled the commanders to recognise their troops. But actually, in the sort of fog of war and the sort of mist and haze, troops were often indistinguishable anyway because of the dust and, and various cavalry uniform units the British Army didn't wear. Uh, red either it was more it was the it was just the color that had been adopted for most infantry regiments there wasn't a sort of a moment in the 19th century where the uh, british high command woke up and thought hang on you know our soldiers being dressed in red this is a bit of a giveaway to the enemy about where they are we need to camouflage them uh, uh, better it was a more sort of gradual uh, process than that that began at the end of the 19th century when uh, in some colonial campaigns and imperial actions uniform issue began to re reflect more the sort of fighting conditions the soldiers found themselves in but this became standard issue dress in the Boer War the Boer War started in 1899 in South Africa and soldiers were issued with this khaki coloured uniform khaki being a, an Indian word for dust and, and those early uniforms that you see from that period have a very sandy colour uh, different from the sort of olive drab colour that you might associate with uh, the army at home today. Although, I suppose for many people, what we're familiar with now is the army serving in Afghanistan, where the uniforms are once again a sandy camouflage colour rather than being that sort of uh, green from earlier times. 
you said there wasn't a sort of a, a, a particular moment where it changed, but uh, at the same time, it sounds as though something happened in someone's mind in relation to the Boer conflict, where they decided uh, perhaps it was better not to be easily spotable. Well, I think I think that's right. The Boer War was the first time that the army, um, that the whole of the army was was equipped in some sort of camouflage material. In this case, being that sort of khaki. Um, and as that war evolved, in particular, where the the Boers, the, the farmers uh, who lived there that we were fighting against, became particularly adept at using natural camouflage and in um, in their tactics as, uh, to, to, of attacking the British army, it became more and more apparent that soldiers needed to blend in with their environment. I see. Okay, so really, this is all about fighting tactics. I'm presuming up until that point, it had been ranks and uh, standing in a line and trying not to get shot. Whereas now, it's more about ducking and diving. There's certainly more flexibility, and you get use first uses of trenches and um, sort of you know shock troops as well at this time. So, yes, those big standard battles that uh, the Napoleonic period is so famous for, they have of course gone by the end of the 19th century but it took a long time You know, it, in the Zulu Wars, British Army are still fighting in quite traditional formations I know we're going to find ourselves talking about some of the other rapid evolutions in martial tactics, e- equipment and so forth in just a moment but we are heading uh, at the moment towards even more ornate costumes if that's possible, I can now see a gold headdress with leopard skin on it it's not getting any subtler. <laughs> what are we looking at here? Well, we're now looking at a display case connected with the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Battle, of course, which has an anniversary in a couple of years' time, and there's a lot of uh, pre- preparation going around, on around the country right now to uh, commemorate that battle. What we've got in front of us here, though, is a series of artefacts that are taken from the battlefield itself in June 1815. Perhaps most striking of all, there's a, a French eagle that was uh, that, w- that was captured by the Royal Dragoons um, at the Battle of Waterloo from the 105th uh, Infantry Regiment, the French. But there's lots of other things here. There's a French Dragoons helmet, which is the uh, the, the brass and uh, animal skin uh, pattern that you were referring to before as well as a sort of bear skin of uh, one of the French grenadier companies who fought to the last man at the battle itself. One of our most popular items here, though, is a, a saw. as a medical saw and a glove. And this, was, uh, this glove was worn by a medical officer who, uh, who was given the job of sawing the leg off uh, the Earl of Uxbridge at the Battle of Waterloo. Now, the Earl of Uxbridge was uh, Wellington's second-in-command, and famously, they were uh, they were observing the battle from their uh, from their horses, and an explosion went off nearby. And Uxbridge said to Wellington, oh, "My God, sir, I've lost my leg." And Wellington is supposed to have replied, "My God, sir, so you have." And Uxbridge was taken off to um, uh, to, to a, a field a medical centre where his leg was sawn off by this very saw, and uh, the surgeon who did it wore that very glove, which is still sort of soaked with a, a blood stain that you can see there. We've got a lot of this sort of medical equipment in the collection, and it always attracts a lot of interest um, because you know, back in the days for anaesthetic, you, you know, if a limb was uh, was hanging off, it had to be removed very quickly. So a surgeon only had a few moments uh, in which to perform this sort of surgery uh, and to then stop the bleeding afterwards, or the patient would literally bleed to death. And this is pre-anaesthetic? It's pre-anaesthetic. It's pre-pretty much everything. Um, so that, yeah, 
pretty horrible being wounded on the battlefield 200 years ago and uh, you didn't have a very high survival rate if you were seriously injured um, and you just hoped that you weren't the first person to have your legs sawn off that day because these sores got very blunt as the day went on. Uh, what became of the Earl of Uxbridge? Well, the Earl of Uxbridge uh, had, had a long life afterwards. Um, he lived up in North Wales. Um, he became uh, Lord Anglesey, and he had uh, a prosthetic leg, or several prosthetic limbs, uh, some of which are preserved at Plas Newarth, which is the family house up there. We've actually recently acquired some spurs that uh, were worn by him after the Battle of Waterloo, and they are modified to um, uh, to take to, to to fit into his uh, his wooden leg because he remained a very keen horse rider uh, after the battle despite losing his leg. For those not up with their military history, what was the significance of the Battle of Waterloo in a in a nutshell? Well, the Battle of Waterloo ended uh, Napoleon's reign in Europe. Napoleon had come to power in the early 1800s, although France had already been at war with uh, many of European Europe's major powers for a number of years. Uh, he, was, he was defeated in 1814 and sent to uh, prison where he escapes, returned to France and started a new 100 days campaign as it was subsequently called. And Waterloo was this huge battle uh, fought by the British and the Prussians and by the French but also by many international brigades. There, was, uh, there were German troops there on the side of the British, there were Irish troops there and there were troops from many other nations as well. Dutch troops I think? There was a, a big Dutch contingency um, and uh, Swiss and others too and this battle really did mark the sort of end of Napoleon's reign um, and I think in Britain it's celebrated as a great British victory, although in Germany it's often celebrated as a great German victory. The Germans or the Prussians were commanded by uh, General Blücher, and he's probably as famous, if not more famous, in parts of Germany than Wellington is here. And we've got an amazing contemporary model of the Battle of Waterloo, which I'd like to show you now. What I'm looking at now is uh, a huge-scale model of the Battle of Waterloo uh, that was put together by uh, a man called Cyburn in the 1820s and early 1830s. And this really is quite a remarkable piece of work because what Cyburn did was he wrote to as many people who'd served and fought on the battle as he could find. Um, and the result is a particular moment, a particular moment in the late afternoon where the troops are shown in the actual depositions that they were at that time. So it's not to sort of a general view of the battle, it's, a, it's an actual moment. And it shows the, uh, the British and the French troops. It's a bit of a political model, though. Uh, Wellington was involved with it, and other, other members of the British establishment too. And there's one sort of thing which is noticeably absent on it, and that is the entire Prussian army, who, who, who don't figure at all, and should be occupying quite a big space in the middle distance there, coming to uh, save the day, uh, as they did towards the end of the day. So this is the Saving Private Ryan of uh, Battle of Waterloo. It is, uh, it is. And it, it, it shows really that it's a piece of social history as much as it is a piece of military history. Because Wellington, it was seen as a great British victory. I mean, yeah, rightly so. I mean, it, it, it was largely a British victory. But this is, um, the, the, this is taking whitewashing to an extreme and removing the Prussians altogether. We turn to the left from that beautiful illuminated model. By the way, I like what you've done with the, uh, the lights moving around the field to show us what's going on there and we see the skeleton of a 
of a horse. Well, this is Napoleon's horse, Marengo. Uh, which he allegedly rode at the Battle of Waterloo. Or rather, he did ride um, Marengo at the Battle of Waterloo. And we believe that this is, this is Marengo's skeleton. It came from the Imperial stables and with uh, excellent provenance. Um, you notice, though, it's got two hooves down at the bottom of the case. There are a number of these hooves in existence. And I think so far I've counted five, but others keep on popping up out of the woodwork. So it's a... Uh, it was a multi-legged legged horse, if, uh, if, if its surviving number of hooves is to be believed. This is like pieces of the cross in days gone by. It is like pieces of the cross, but we, we have two, as you, as you, you can see here, and there are others uh, in, uh, in museum collections. Well, that's the whistle-stop tour of the Battle of Waterloo, but let's move further back in time. We've come down half a level, and there's a man pointing a gun at me. Uh, these guys are wearing woolly hats, carrying plague staffs. This is looking a lot like the Civil War. Yes, the scene that we're looking at is from the Battle of Naseby in 1645, and we've got a pikeman and a musketeer from the New Model Army. This was this new professional army put together by Oliver Cromwell on behalf of Parliament to fight the Royalist forces of Charles I. And the guys are in these sort of um, russet red jackets. They were all costumed in the same way. The musketeer has got a matchlock musket, which um, where the powder was lit in an open pan with a, a long, like a like piece of cord, uh, or, or it looks like a piece of rope, uh, but called a match in the, in the language of the time. And that was a, a smouldering uh, light source, which was used to light the powder in the pan of the musket. So you're saying that this piece of cord hanging from the thing was, was constantly uh, smouldering? Yeah, constantly lit, so with a small sort of light, uh, yeah, like, a, like a cigarette almost, if you like, and you would, uh, you'd put that into the pan of the, the musket along with the powder, put the ball down the barrel, and then you'd blow on the match to get a spark to ignite the powder and shoot the... Uh, uh, the musket out. But and, does that mean they couldn't fight if it was raining? Pretty much, they couldn't ride. They couldn't fight if it was raining because the wooden stock would also swell up. But sometimes it didn't work it, uh, anyway because these these are fairly inaccurate weapons. And then kneeling in front of the musketeer is uh, a pikeman, and this is a very typical pikeman of the age with about an eighteen foot pike. The, the pike detachment of a of a battalion at that time were used to protect the musketeers and they would, uh, they'd form a sort of a hedgehog uh, defensive position that the musketeers could fire from behind, fire at cavalry. And we have here a depiction of an of a, a English Civil War cavalryman, slightly earlier, from about 1643, and he's wearing the sort of uniform and armour that, um, that the cavalry wore at that time. He's got a metal breastplate and backplate on, and it's got a special metal helmet, very distinctive for this period, sometimes called a, a lobster-tail helmet, which has an articulated uh, piece at the back to protect the back of the neck from sword blows, and then a movable visor at the front, uh, again to deflect sword blows, because his job would be to come in amongst the pikemen, finish off the musketeers. Right, so this is a particular, a very particular time, isn't it? We've gone past that point where the knights on the horses were wearing full armour and if they were off the horse they were in serious stuck. But we are already at the point where you can do long-distance fighting with uh, at least some accuracy by firing weapons rather than having to get in close. The, the, the muskets were really most effective en masse. I mean, these aren't like modern-day rifles where... Um, the, I should explain, a rifle is, a, is called that because it has... 
rifling in the barrel which allows the bullet to spin and gives uh, more accuracy over a longer distance these were quite inaccurate weapons just firing a, a ball of lead um, from, a, from an explosive powder shot and so it was best to mass them all together and fire at the ranks of the enemy in the hope that you'd hit them rather than uh, aiming carefully at someone coming towards you. Did the, did the lead bullets stay together or did they uh, split open into shot? How did they work? Uh, they stayed together and there's lots, there's lots of accounts of how a lead ball might pass through several people. I mean, these are, um, if it did hit you, they were awful awful uh, wounds could be caused by them but you see though with these these new model army soldiers neither of them are wearing armor this is the pikeman and the musketeer but earlier on in the war pikemen in particular did wear armor they wore um, this sort of breastplate and backplate and they wore uh, thigh protectors i can show you some of those in this uh, in this display case here and these thigh protectors uh, were um articulated or sometimes they look articulated but aren't we're looking by the way listener at a metal miniskirt essentially it's a metal miniskirt attached by hooks to the bottom of the breastplate worn on the on the chest and these are called tassets and they were designed to protect the thighs they're pretty useless and very um, cumbersome soldiers quickly discarded them in fact for, for just to retain the breast and backplate because when you're fighting essentially against swords and pikes that's what you need to protect yourself from um, also on display here are some of the early forms of armour there's a, a leather buff coat this was a, a leather jerkin worn under the armour it's, uh, it's sort of shaped in at the waist and flares out again to protect the upper thighs as the war developed, the English Civil War many soldiers and officers just wore this because it gives you greater flexibility and can deflect a, a, a sword blow now, we've been looking, of course, at the costumes in particular because they're, in some ways, they're an easy way into the, the time. There's something that's tangible and, and still exists here, preserved beautifully in the museum. Uh, what about the army as a, as a sort of a, an administrative machine, as a structure? How has it changed since the time when people were wearing these costumes? Well, the, the, the army, of, of course, has become a far more professional organisation in terms of training of ordinary soldiers and of, of the officer corps with a, a huge administration behind it about the supply of troops. I mean, this period here, the English Civil War, 1640s, yeah, in a period of amateur soldiering. And that amateur tradition survived for quite some time. So even the 19th century, when you start to get a more organised and disciplined British army, you still get officers talking about it being a bad day for the army when it's run by professional soldiers. So, so the 19th century is the big period of explosion for, um, uh, for reform of the army. But it's the 20th century where you get sort of modern forms of training that we know today. I'm wondering whether the Civil War was the point at which the assembling of forces moved from it being all the people who owe allegiance to a particular feudal lord or something like that to it being people fighting for a cause uh, as it was in the, the Civil War. The creation of the New Model Army is really that time where you get people becoming professional soldiers. And then after that, you have people enlisting or being press-ganged <clears throat> into joining the army. So they're then soldiers for life rather than just being called up. Because before the Civil War, Britain didn't have standing armies. Armies were raised... Uh, to counter a particular emergency and grants of money were raised by Parliament at that time as well in the days before income tax uh, you know, usually 
to fight a foreign war. And there's lots of ways in which soldiers might be recruited uh, at that time or drafted. They could have been people who worked on the estate of a great lord or areas could have had some sort of uh, feudal system where each village had to supply a couple of men, horsed and harnessed in the, in the language of the time, ready to repel invaders from Scotland or to join the king's army on a, a continental adventure. So there's lots of ways in which those troops would be raised, but the expectation was that they would be disbanded. After the Civil War, you get professional soldiers who spend their entire life uh, as, a, as a soldier and you know, progress through the ranks. We are passing now through exhibits from the Boer War. A British infantryman here depicted uh, sitting writing letters home uh, through to a gallery with exhibits from the days of national service. Now that's something I didn't register earlier on is that uh, that was at the same time as the Cold War was in its uh, chilly heights. Indeed, and there are many sort of you know, forgotten uh, wars and periods of conflict from the 1950s, you know, Malaya, the Mau Mau uh, rising in uh, East Africa and elsewhere. And I think a lot of these have been forgotten. National service wasn't just about being in the barracks in the UK. There were lots of actions that were taking place. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on a 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet or desktop, or burnt to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. We've got a temporary exhibition on at the moment uh, about what was Britain's greatest battle. I think that's a very interesting question to ask. What, what is it about the nature of battle that makes it particularly significant? Is it you know, the impact that it's had on modern-day Britain? Is it because it was a great victory or, or, similarly, a great defeat? Or is it something which is just remembered in popular culture? What, what, what is the essence of this? So the museum, uh, working with the academics on the staff, came up with a shortlist, a very controversial shortlist, of 20 battles that Britain had been involved with um, since the end of the 18th century, and then put that to a public vote, both online and a physical vote that you could uh, vote for in the galleries. Now, that voting has now closed, but it's very interesting, I think, to have a look at some of the nominations for what, what it was that made Britain's greatest battle. Yes, and maybe the listener might be thinking about having a guess themselves as to which would fall into the category of the, in inverted commas, greatest battle. I think we could uh, suspend the revelation of the online vote for a moment or two, uh, as that is guessable. What I would say is that the number one, according to the academics here, is from the Second World War, and yet it's one, uh, even with a reasonable amount of knowledge of that war, that I've certainly never heard of. Am I shamefully ignorant well no I, I think the campaigns the British army fought against the Japanese in the Far East are not well known particularly when you compare these with uh, you know, D-Day Normandy landings a battle for France or even the great battles between Russia and uh, Germany in Stalingrad and elsewhere which have become 
much more better known recently. I think the the, the battles in uh, in the jungle against uh, the Japanese have fallen from popular consciousness, and the winner of the top twenty British battles, according to, to a sort of a, a panel of uh, a, a voting event that took place is the Battle of Impal and Kohima in the Second World War in 1944. Now, this was um, a period of sort of dreadful sort of hand-to-hand fighting between the British and the Japanese forces. And it was one of the most sort of... It, it was a real turning point in that war with Japan, a gruelling battle which, where Japan was defeated and pushed back, uh, allowing for the reconquest of Burma. And... Aside from the, the clear drama and uh, and bravery that must have been put to the test under these grueling circumstances, what put that battle ahead of some of the other more uh, globally renowned confrontations? I think we, we, we had a we had an event here, a day event, where the um, the top five battles were discussed and debated. I think a very powerful case for this one was was put across. Some battles remain in the popular consciousness; they are famous. But this was this was de- decisive uh, at that uh, at that moment in the Burma campaign, and uh, and deserves the, uh, a higher acknowledgement. Something that's slightly concerning me. Is and, and of course this is all about uh, representing the history of an organisation and uh, we might perhaps touch on the relationship with the, the Ministry of Defence shortly but to my mind of course war is a horrible, terrible thing with pieces being shot off people and, and misery and death ensuing I wonder whether the idea of a greatest battle perhaps some of the kind of noble and uh, valorous exhibits here uh, fails to quite address that well, this is essentially an exhibition about you know, what is it a, what the, the nature of battle that, that makes us believe that something is great or not great. And some of the battles here are uh, defeats, sometimes quite spectacular uh, defeats, or most recently a, a, um, a very uh, a battle, an action that's really not very well known in uh, Operation Herrick in Afghanistan, uh, the Battle of Musa Kala um, in 2006-2007. And that isn't the traditional warfare that we would recognise. It's an ongoing uh, um, fight between British forces and insurgents um, with moments which might appear like like the sort of war film battles that we're familiar with um, at at the cinema. But uh, I'm I'm much more about endurance and the professionalism of the British Army. Uh, There is an element with some early campaigns of a sort of a gung-ho approach to the way they've been popularly remembered. But what we try and do here is to bring different interpretations to bear on that. In an exhibition like this, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's a very sort of um, condensed version of each campaign. But in our permanent galleries, we talk much more about the social cost of that, uh, the advances in medicine that those warfares might have developed, but also you know, what it was like to, to be there. And as you rightly say, most of the first-hand accounts are about the horrors of warfare. I mean, that is the, that is, that, that is the consistent theme. One of the, um, the battles that we put forward for the top 20 was the Battle of the Somme. I don't think anyone would think of the Battle of the Somme as being like a great battle, uh, 
a, a top 20 event. That, 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 that's not the appropriate sort of language to describe that. But what we're trying to get at here is that these are battles which in the popular consciousness, which in the history of Britain, have helped to shape that history, helped to define Britishness. And the Somme is probably one of the most famous of all uh, battles fought by Britain. Somme was, of course, in July 1916. And actually, if we have a look at um, the artefact that's been selected for this, because for each of the battles, there's only one artefact that's been selected, whether it's a a bayonet or a uniform or a, a painting. And for the Somme, we have here the uh, tunic of an officer who lost his arm at the Battle of the Somme. And, you, and it's, the tunic is a, is a rather sort of grisly relic of that war. His, uh, his right sleeve is torn just beneath the shoulder and then completely missing where it was blown off. And the rest has been stitched back together in quite a sort of Frankenstein way um, because, of course, he would have had to have... Uh, he, would have, he would have reused this uniform afterwards. Um, you can see at the bottom, though, there is still the mud of the Somme um, attached to it. So this is a very poignant item, a very poignant reminder of the reality of conflict. And if you compare this with some of the 19th century paintings, and we have over here, for example, a, a scene from the Charge of the Light Brigade showing the heavy brigade uh, attacking Russian positions during the Crimean War in the 1850s. And here is a, a painting which we're much more familiar with. There's sort of horses dashing across open ground, soldiers with their with cavalrymen with their swords aloft. And it, this seems, a, although representing a terrible slaughter and representing a, uh, a disaster uh, for Britain militarily, it, it's designed to elicit a feeling of patriotism and excitement about warfare, which is simply not the way we look at warfare in the 21st century, or indeed most of the 20th century as well. So in a gallery that is all about battles, it seems as almost as though the concept of battles is close to being outdated in terms of how warfare is conducted. That's certainly the case now. Uh, we are looking to redevelop the museum at the moment and we're looking for uh, an interpretive approach to it, so like a thematic approach about how we might deal with this complex history. And you look at the way military history has been presented up to now in, in museums. Uh, it, it's chronological and it deals with one battle after another. And right now, that may well not be the way... Uh, future conflicts are fought although you know history has a habit of um, playing tricks on us and uh, you know, who, who knows we, we might we might return to um and I, and I hope not but we might return to a, a period where there is some very large traditional staged warfare it very much depends on who the combatants are because of course when one side is militarily inferior to another it's not going to engage that, that, that side on in, in open warfare in, in the grand manner of the 19th century or even in the sort of carnage of the First World War is going to be done through improvised explosive devices, it's going to be done through insurgency and terrorism. Right, and, and in the case of, I don't know, Libya or something like that, lots of different factions all mixed in together, both politically and, and geographically, difficult to tell who's who, not as clear-cut as the people in the red coats on one side, blue coats on the other. With the Ministry of Defence connection, about which perhaps we could say something now, I wondered how you deal with representing the wars that are ongoing. 
Well, we are the Museum of the British Army, and we're funded by the Ministry of Defence, but we're not... Um, we're not managed by the Ministry of Defence in that, in that um, matter. We, we keep uh, editorial control, and that's very important. It's very important for visitors. It's also very important, I think, for the MOD as well, because as an organisation, we need to be impartial. Um, and I think for us, that means that we take a, a measured approach to the experience of the British Army in Afghanistan. We have respect for the British Army, and we want to show the work that the British Army is doing there, the professionalism of that work. But across time, that relationship with the MOD doesn't prevent us from being critical of the history of the British Army when we need to be critical. And, of course, there are many times with any army, any nation, where armies um, have fallen short of the expectations that civilians might have of them for whatever reason that has happened. And I think for some of those uh, events over time and we are dealing with a 400 year period we need to um, have the freedom and we, we do have the freedom to address those issues and talk about stuff which is quite difficult um, from a modern day perspective I think for example of issues of cowardice uh, and, and bravery the first world war is, is especially uh, famous in the popular mind for um, the way in which people were treated through what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder and you need to i think as as, as a a modern museum to to treat that sort of issue sympathetically and also to be critical where the british army has perhaps been involved in actions which we wouldn't condone uh, from a 21st century perspective before we move on to our final exhibit here at the national army museum i've become increasingly conscious of the elephant in the room which is of course that uh, and apart from until very very recently uh, this is a story about men specifically a genderized story and i sort of feel that if this were uh, a reversed situation for example if we were talking about nursing i think gender would be highly prominent but i haven't seen so far any mention of gender and I, I wondered about that. Well, the museum reflects the experience of the British soldier. And for a long time, of course, that was a, a male profession. But even early on in the, in the displays, we talk about the role of women in the army where that's appropriate. So famously in the Crimea War, for example, where you have Florence Nightingale, but also less well-known, perhaps Mary Seacole, and others who were working as, as nurses. And there's always been that sort of female contingent. But equally important, of course, is the the experience of the soldier as part of a family, as part of society. And that is something that we touch on in parts of the gallery. But the 20th century and beyond story of um, female regiments, that is, that is something that we address. And we have very large collections of, uh, of, of, uh, from, from ex-regimental uh, museums uh, dealing with the experience of female soldiers in the 20th century. And you see, you, I've said gender and you've assumed I'm talking about female gender. But what I was interested in was the experience of not merely being a soldier, but being a male. So, for example, where you talk about the family side of things, it seems to me that little mention gets made of uh, you know the, the people left behind and the uh, missing the, the family responsibilities that can't be fulfilled because you're out on the front or, or indeed just the whole issue of every so often the country deciding to send a lot of its men folk out into these horrific conditions that is a, that's a very interesting and valid point i think at the at the moment the national army museum tells the story of the army chronologically and that is sort of driven by battles and campaigns and the artefacts associated with those campaigns. 
It is something, though, that we've realised, um, and we are absolutely addressing that in our new museum. So, subject to uh, funding, um, when the museum closes, the whole narrative story of the army, as represented here, will change, and we'll go from a sort of chronological wars story to something much more uh, thematic, where some of those themes will be about the experience of being a soldier and looking at that comparatively over time. Now, you can find that stuff here today in the museum, uh, but it tends to be uh, split between galleries. And in the new museum, we want to bring that together and and look at that experience across time, but really address just those sort of questions. What, what, What does it mean to be a soldier? And combat and active service is only one aspect of that. Well, finally, we come to the fantastically named Conflicts of Interest Gallery. And we're tying in with what we were talking about just a moment ago. This is a picture, really, that could only have existed in more recent years. The enormous uh, 10, 12-foot picture that faces us from the other end of the gallery, a female soldier, a Red Cross uh, armband on and a machine gun in her hands. Well, this is a much more uh, recent and modern gallery than the ones we were just looking at here. And this gallery looks at uh, Britain's involvement in conflict over the last 40 years, the changing nature of conflict. And this does look at the impact of the soldier at home and on, uh, on recruitment and the increasing use of uh, female soldiers in, uh, in, in combat zones. There's a great series of posters as we go in uh, from recruitment from the last 20 or 30 years. Recruitment posters are a sort of fascinating mirror about uh, the nature of British society. When I was growing up in the 1970s, the emphasis was all on join the British Army and you can go skiing and you can see the world. But you know, the result of sort of cheap holidays, that's much less of a appeal than it used to be. Hundred years ago, it was all about patriotism. You, you there, join up. In, indeed, no, that was exactly it. Whereas now, it's about. If you look at some of the posters that you see here, it's about professionalism. It's about how, if you're in the British Army, you will be trained to such standards of professionalism that should you choose to leave the army, you will be multi-skilled, transferable skills. Or if you choose to stay in the army, you'll have a full and rewarding career, both sort of stimulating intellectually and worthwhile and financially rewarding. It's a very sort of different emphasis, emphasis on the professionalism of the army. And and utterly uh, well-founded as well. I know, having come into contact with a number of ex-servicemen, that the uh, availability of courses as they re-enter Civvy Street are really quite remarkable. It's it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary how well-trained British soldiers are today. I mean, mean, the British Army is a highly trained, highly professional uh, organisation. Um, and you know, I think that is what we can see in this exhibition, in fact. We're looking at a picture of six uniformed soldiers carrying a coffin draped in the Union flag. Each of the recruitment posters that we have on display in the entrance here is backed on with an image showing another aspect of the British Army's experience. So there's a large photograph of soldiers returning from uh, Afghanistan being issued with medals. There's parades in, in towns because an important part of... Uh, of sort of municipal life, civic life in, in certain areas, but there's also, as you rightly say, a picture here of a, uh, a coffin draped in, draped in the Union flag of a, a, a soldier who died in service, being brought back by his comrades, um, possibly to uh, Wooden Bassett, which has become such a such a symbol of the loss of life in Afghanistan. We find a. Oh, I can never remember. Was it Haig or Kitchener who's pointing the finger? 
Kitchener. Uh, Kitchener's famous poster from the First World War, Your Country Needs You, which was uh, uh, drawn by Alfred Leitz, a, a major commercial artist at the time. And that has been hugely parodied uh, since uh, by, by the Americans. Uh, they used it for their own recruitment campaigns. Oh, yes, the Uncle Sam they pointing. Uncle yeah. Sam, by a chap called Montgomery Flagg, who drew it. But there's been many uh, sort of skits of it since. In the uh, late 1990s and 2000s, the British Army reissued it themselves um, with different faces uh, imposed on Kitchener's face to show the diversity of the British Army, but with the same message, your country needs you. We've come to the final gallery of our visit, but by no means the final gallery of the museum as a whole. Now, okay, these uh, display pieces, they're glass, and they've got information on them, and they're lit from below, and uh, this is very much next generation territory but this is really the next generation of warfare or at least the uh, the very uh, cutting edge of the current one we've got drones here we've got a helmet here now uh, back to the sci-fi theme i think we recognize the helmet that's in the display case just here relating to uh, basra and saddam hussein and, and that war Yes, it's a helmet from uh, Hussein's personal bodyguard and he was very influenced by the iconography of Star Wars or at least it would seem so from this helmet which is clearly modelled on a Darth Vader style helmet Fortunately though, they were out of cash and they were made out of fibreglass those helmets are quite useless as as, as a method of protection So just fancy dress? Pretty much just fancy dress. But this gallery as a whole is the last 40 years it's a very modern gallery talks about the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq about the troubles in Northern Ireland and the changing and evolving role of the British Army and it's got some great stuff as you come in, you come into a a modern day living room and that's all about how ideas about the army ideas about soldiering come into the home through television, novels books and music and and, how that influences what people think, whether they want to join up or whether they want to protest but the gallery itself uh, looks at those campaigns that Britain's been involved with. And we come now to a comments board. It's very important, I think, for people to have an opportunity to respond to what they've seen. And the comments we get here are often of a very reflective nature. People often be very moved by what they've seen and they feel necessary to leave a comment behind for other visitors to read. Um, let's pick a few at random and see what sort of things people are saying as they respond to the exhibits here at the National Army Museum. Well, there's one here, for example. I'm just, just picking this at random. It says, thinking of you when you're away, we love you so much, you fill us with pride, love you, mum and dad. And obviously, obviously that's the parents of a, of a serving soldier. Hate war. We should all hate war. But without the armed forces, we would be living in a different world. We must never forget these brave people says uh, says jb another says the soldiers are faithful and true to our country and have dedicated their lives to being a soldier and i, I would say from the handwriting that's a much younger person and there are three love hearts drawn underneath that you can see it, there's a, there's a lot of comments here from children often in the sort of like no war peace that sort of thing but on the whole I mean, we we don't sort of mediate this we let people put up their own comments but you can see generally there is a there's like a mood of quiet remembrance you know, i think that's the modern attitude isn't it we we respect and support the army we don't always agree with what britain has to do over, abroad and we acknowledge that the army is doing an often intolerable job on our behalf and for that 
we support them. Which is the point at which we must bring our tour of the National Army Museum to a close. David Bounds, where can people find out more and get directions to come here in Chelsea? The best place is to go to our website, National Army Museum, which lists all the events that we've got on and our opening times. We're open from uh, 10 till 5.30, seven days a week, and it, admission is free. You can see all of this great stuff. Uh, we're on the Royal Hospital Road in Chelsea. The nearest tube station is Sloan Square. Got a fantastic programme of events on. We have a, a free weekly lecture on a Thursday, and we have a guest lecture uh, uh, program um once a month and next uh, speaker we have is andy mcnab on the 23rd of may talking about his famous book bravo 20 lots of stuff going on for kids kids zone kids events as well so have a look at the website come on down david bounce thanks very much thank you very much indeed And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to David Bounds. Thanks too to Becca Evans and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 